Welcome to this week's Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And we are recording for the very first time from what we call the pod, the, the pit of despair. Or the Sarlacc pit. You're, it's really kind of dealer's choice on that one. Yeah, but, but I like the pit of despair because it's both from the Princess Bride and it's biblical. Uh, Psalm 40 from the New Living Translation says, uh, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. The pit of despair, Nathan. Why didn't you list that among some of our other assets? <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Good quote. Uh, so what, where we are is what we're calling the pit of despair is a brand new room across from our office at Water of Life Lutheran Church in Racine. And uh, it's an old storage room. Really, it was a junk, junk room. And it's been uh, redone for us to have a room so we can do counseling. We did a, a very first counseling session here in the pit of despair with a daughter of one of our members whom God called home to heaven on Monday, and so we were working with her on the funeral. You know, and I'm just thinking about this. If we're going to keep recording in here, we should get one of those on-air signs to put in the window. Yeah, that would be good, especially since we also have the preschoolers and the kindergartners coming by at to use the bathrooms right next to the pit of despair. Although, since we're recording at 8 o'clock at night, I don't think we have to worry about any preschoolers and kindergartners walking by. I, I would certainly hope not, because that means they've been here by themselves for several hours. <laughs> so we had our special podcast last week with Pastor Lightnin, so we did not look at the scripture readings from last week. Uh, this week's gospel lesson is from Matthew 18, the unmerciful servant. Uh, but since we didn't get a talk about uh, Matthew 18, starting with verse 15, which leads into the unmerciful servant, we thought we would touch on that one because it leads into uh, the what Jesus is talking about with Peter and his disciples. Do you want to read from starting with verse 15 there, Nathan? Yeah. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his sin just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have regained your brother. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as an unbeliever or a tax collector. Amen, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Amen, I tell you again, if two of you on earth agree to ask for anything, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. In fact, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am among them. So one of the things, uh, one of the reasons why Nathan and I wanted to touch on this too is he and I are working together on a, a paper we wanted to present uh, for our church and school and so forth. Do you want to give kind of the reasoning behind uh, this paper and so forth, Nathan? So Matthew 18 is often cited in church constitutions, bylaws, um, personnel manuals, staff handbooks, that sort of thing, as a template um, for resolving conflict. And that's not really what Jesus is doing in this section. He's not really laying this out as a set of principles that have to be followed every time you're dealing with a matter of conflict. This section of Matthew 18 really is dealing with the concept of sin and how to approach a fellow Christian who has committed a grave sin. And so we're just kind of addressing that issue. Um, and one of the other things that unfortunately sometimes happen is people like to sometimes use Matthew 18 almost as a paper shield to hold up and say, ah, you didn't come talk to me first, or up, oh, you didn't bring two or three witnesses first, therefore you can't hold me accountable for this sin. And that's, that's really violating the principle 
of what Jesus is saying. He's not setting this up as a set of laws that we have to follow because there are no New Testament laws. Yeah. So like you said, it's often seen as a way to deal with conflict resolution. You go and talk to the person one-on-one, and that is really good advice with any conflict. But in talking with people over time, we, when you and I started talking to people about this, is well, it's really dealing with sin and not conflict. And then we were asked, well, but isn't conflict sin? Not necessarily. Uh, that you and I might have a disagreement that, you know, as much as I love you calling this room the Sarlacc pit, you're just wrong, and it's uh, going to be the pit of despair. I'll pull rank on you on that, if, as if I had any rank. But, <laughs> but there could be a conflict there, but that's not sin. Or one I thought of from Acts would be where Paul and Barnabas, they have a real conflict over whether they should bring Mark along. Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas on a previous mission journey, Barnabas wants to bring Mark along. He he, thinks he's changed. Paul does not want to bring him. And they are in so much conflict that they break up. Now, you might say, well, that's sinful conflict, but it could be sanctified conflict that Barnabas thinks he's changed and Paul is thinking, well, maybe he has, maybe he hasn't, but if he leaves us again, we're going to be stranded. And they could both be very sanctified and holy in their thinking. And uh, I don't know if they went through this because the matter wasn't resolved, but you can have sanctified conflict without it being sin. Well, I think there's times, too, in conflict resolution where you, knowing the person you're having the issue with, um, you might say, I don't think they and I talking about it one-on-one is going to achieve any sort of resolution that you really need to bring an arbitrator, a third party, a neutral party into the situation to help mediate the dispute. And I, I don't believe that's violating Matthew 18 because, again, here Jesus is talking about sin, especially with the result that the end of Matthew 18 is excommunication, removal, basically saying someone is an unbeliever. And a lot of conflict is not ever going to escalate to that level. This does seem, Matthew 18 does seem to be talking about an issue of grave sin that someone is caught in and out of love. You're approaching that person, and if they're refusing to acknowledge their sin, then it's saying, well, we're going to bring two other people. And it almost does seem, I think you had mentioned, Michael, that this is referring back to, is it, uh, oh, Deuteronomy, and the idea of bringing in witnesses that attest to the veracity of the accusation you're you're saying. Not that they're serving as a mediator, but they're also saying, no, we have also seen this behavior. It is serious. It is sin. And we, as a group, are now calling you to repent. Yeah. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, not has a conflict with you. And we're as Lutherans are very much on making sure we do not take verses out of context. Well, what's the context? In Matthew uh, chapter 18, verse 15, it follows uh, verses 12, 13, and 14. It just makes sense. Well, what are verses uh, 12, 13, and 14? It's the parable of the lost sheep. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, he goes and leaves the 99 and goes and finds the lost one. Who's that lost one? It's the one who has been lost in sin, not in conflict. If your brother sins against you, becomes a lost sheep, you're going to do everything you can. And like Nathan said before, you're not uh, just laying out these steps as we see in the next part of the unmerciful servant. It's not like, all right, we did step one, I went and talked to my brother, I did step two, I brought some witnesses, step three, I brought it to the church, and now I'm done. No, Jesus says in a little bit, we're going to get to, you go and you talk to your brother and you forgive that brother 77 times. You keep going. And then, Nathan, you also mentioned about the two or three witnesses. I've always been taught, and this is in my curriculum for catechism, which I didn't write, but I use, but I think a lot of times we have used that testimony of two or three witnesses, like you said, they're mediators. The first time, 
I went and I say, I, I have a conflict with you. Now, the next time I bring my circuit pastor and, well, we have two circuit pastors. I bring those two witnesses to make sure that everyone knows you're wrong, Nathan. Okay. And uh, that's not what it is. You're right. Jesus is quoting, bring two or three witnesses. That's from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Those two or three witnesses are saying, like a legal thing, that they saw you sin, and if you don't have two or three witnesses, then there was, you can't really bring that person, you, you know, I can make a claim against you, but it's not a legal claim. And what's interesting, I was just looking, I should have done this earlier, I was just looking up in the Greek, because um, I had read something that Professor Kuski had written in a paper um, about this section of Matthew. Um, in English translations, it says, you know, if a brother sins against you, go show him his sin, or I think some translations say something like, go go speak to him about his sin. And the word is elegso, and it has more of a judicial flavor to it, like to bring to light, expose, set forth, convict, convince. It's really more of a matter of like reproving someone instead of just talking to someone. Um, and it, it really has that that idea of someone has done something something serious. Um, I do think there is value, the principles of Matthew 18, of are good for conflict management, of trying to solve things one-on-one. -on -one. And I also understand in a lot of official church documents that our synod uses that we have things in there that say no accusation should be bring, brought against a called worker um, if the steps of Matthew 18 have not been taken. But in those instances, again, I think it's speaking not of a conflict with that person, but a matter of, of grave sin, that there should never be a time in a church where a member would get up at a voters meeting and say, pastor was stealing out of the collection plate, I saw him. That's what, that's what those are designed to guard against, not necessarily, well, we're having a disagreement over how we should implement this new outreach policy, and so we need to bring someone else in to help us mediate this dispute. Yeah. Like you said before, too, is many times people, well, we, we just like steps. and Do this, do this, do this. And if we follow this as conflict resolution, you've got your steps. But it's not conflict resolution. This is sin and grace. That's messy stuff. So the Bible verses that you know I'm going to include in our paper are verses that talk about kindness, gentleness, humility, patience, and so forth. Those kinds of things that there are no steps. It's just you keep doing it over and over again. And humility, this in the marriage counseling I've done is I've learned to start with humility because usually when there is conflict and you need resolution in a marriage, someone, probably both of them, are not being humble. And so that's where I'm starting right now when I do that marriage counseling. Start with humility. Put the other person first. Forgive. That's going to be the parable of the unmerciful servant. Forgive and then you know even you know admit you're wrong confess your sins and hopefully the other person will admit his or her sins and now there's humility now we're lowering ourselves underneath the other person now you can do real conflict resolution where the conflict is sin not just a disagreement and i think one of the things i wanted to look at is while there are no biblical examples of how to specifically do Christian conflict resolution, we do have some descriptive examples in the book of Acts. Uh, the one I thought of was when the, some of the Jewish, um, the Jewish believers and the Greek believers, right after Pentecost, got into disagreement over the order the widows were being fed in. And so what did they do? They took it to the apostles, and the apostles weighed all the options and came up, to, came up with a solution or later on in Acts with the Jerusalem Council, where there was a disagreement over some matters of Adiaphra. And how they resolved those is they talked about it in a group and came to a 
mutually edifying solution that benefited everyone. Did everyone get what they wanted? No, but they were able to reach a compromise that was still in accord with God's word. Yeah, and another conflict, a big one, would be Paul calling out Peter when Peter is acting like a Gentile until the Jews show up, and then he acts like a Jew, and Paul from what Paul says, he doesn't take Peter aside and show him his sin just between the two of them. He he writes, is that in Gal- I think it's in Galatians, that he calls him out publicly in front of all of the Jewish and uh, Gentile believers. Well, because it was a public sin, but then otherwise, if he did that, he wasn't following the steps of Matthew 18. And I dealt with that a few times when I served on church council in Watoma, we had some matters of public sin, and they had to be addressed publicly. And we had people that were upset because they said, well, you didn't follow the steps of Matthew 18. And as a council, we responded, but this was already public knowledge in the church. It was a public sin. It was causing public offense and therefore had to be addressed publicly. Yeah. When you say it like that, it reminds me of many years ago, one of my members made made me aware that another member had was calling out a teacher uh, in our school. Just, I don't know what it was about, but it was not kind. And uh, other people who weren't involved in our church or school were piling on the teacher, not knowing the situation, giving that teacher a bad name, breaking the Eighth Commandment. So I went on, now maybe I could have dealt with it more gently, but I tried to put a stop to it right away, and I just said, this is not right. Um, and, you know, that, that member got upset, and then other people said, well, how come you get to call this person out uh, on, on social media, and she doesn't get to call the other person out? Because, and I said, this is, a, this is a public sin. Now, thankfully, she took the post down right away. Now, she also didn't come back to church, so I may not have handled it exactly right, but like you said— there is a public sin, and so I, I probably now in hindsight, I would call her up and then talk to her about these things instead of just putting it on Facebook. That was not probably the best thing to do. But the key is, uh, as we're talking about this, the idea is we're trying to, when we see sin, our goal is to win that person over. As Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. That if you and I have someone that sins against us, and they're unrepentant, Jesus is saying, now uh, we are not offering Christ forgiveness. Their sin against us is bound to them. But whatever you loose on earth, we loose in heaven. Jesus is giving us his authority, his power to be able to hold people accountable to their sins or to loose them of their sins. So now Jesus has forgiven their sins, so we forgive them. I think something else that sometimes gets overlooked in this section is when Jesus says, treat them as you would a tax collector or an unbeliever. And I think some people take that as, well, so we we break off all contact with them, we don't talk to them again, we cast them out, we treat them as somebody who is untouchable. Well, no, what are we called as a church to do? We're called to share God's word with the unbelievers. Jesus went and preached to the tax collectors. And that's what we keep doing with somebody that if we unfortunately have to reach the level of excommunication, we still reach out to them with God's word. We try to call them back. We don't just simply cut them loose and say, well, you're on your own. Yeah, and then if two of you, I guess I didn't put this together until you you and I were talking about those two witnesses uh, being a legal thing, if two of you on earth legally agreed to ask for anything, it will be done for you. Uh, you know, there's that legal term. And then he goes on to say, in fact, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I among them. And there, I think, as we're trying to win that lost brother who has sinned against us, that lost sheep, now we have brought him back into the flock and that flock may be only two or three. But the goal is, like you said, Nathan, is uh, that person is treated as a, a pagan or a tax collector, a sinner, someone who's lost, because that was the an undesirable, that was the tax collector. Now w- our goal is, all right, they're lost, they're without faith. But that means we go at them not as believing members of the church, but as unbelievers. Now 
Now they go from our membership role to our outreach role. They're just different, you know, you and I are, you're the in-reach pastor, I'm the outreach pastor. You you might say, all right, Michael, I've worked on this person. Yeah, I'm, I'm done with them. They're your problem <laughs> That's right. Now. That's right. It's kind of like when God, I get the fun part of when uh, God, I had my uh, one of my first adult confirmation classes tonight. So Lord willing, this person who was in my class tonight, and I've got a, a new one starting in a couple of weeks, and that, that'll be a more full class. Then I can hand them over in 10 weeks over to Nathan and say, yeah, now they're your problem, but hopefully they're a good problem because God has sanctified them. And then you get, I'll get the ones that are now outreach visits because, you know, they, because they've been treated as, a, as an unbeliever. Something else that I just noticed as we were kind of talking through this, and I'm not sure I have the time or the requisite Greek skills to look into, but the word church, take it to the church. Church has such loaded baggage in our usage, and it would be interesting to study how the gospel writers use church um, in their gospels because there was not a formal organization of a church. There was the synagogue, but Jesus doesn't say synagogue. He says the the church, the assembly of believers. And that may be something else to look into, that there may not be the formality that we sometimes associate with this. Yeah. So we just want to touch on this because it's something that's on our hearts because we're going to be working on this small paper, not a big doctrinal paper or anything. Uh, I just know, just working with Nathan these past few months, his portion is going to be very detailed and very smart. And then I'll just bring in some funny stuff and <laughs> call it done. <laughs> you keep writing these checks that I'm not sure I can cash. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to bring up in those verses? No, I don't think there's anything else. Oh, oh. I, I do have one thing. So we had uh, a professor from the seminary come and preach on this text for our outdoor worship service and church picnic. And he had a uh, very interesting illustration he had in a sermon about a young girl, uh, how, how old was she? Maybe 18 years old, that was killed in a car accident. And the parents, uh, for part of his sentencing, wanted him, and it was passed by the judge, that he had to write uh, a, a check out every week on Friday for $1, for, and it would equal how, you know, the 18 years of her life. And, you know, what I was thinking of that is that was not, you know, I know what the family was trying to do. They're trying to drive the pain home to this young man. And uh, the professor's sermon said the, the young man was driven to so much guilt, he just stopped paying or he wrote it all in one big check, got it over with. That's not our goal is to drive the person to further guilt. Uh, our goal is to drive them on their knees in repentance to drive them to the cross. Yeah, it's one thing to have someone who is unwilling to repent of a sin. It's another to have someone who is repentant and then to lay additional burdens on them. That, that, that crushes faith. That does not build faith. Yeah, the illustration I use with this in my seventh grade catechism class when, it, when this text comes up is uh, several years ago, there was a white female police officer that, uh, down in Texas that had come into her apartment and saw a black man in, the, in her apartment and then shot and killed him, except she was one floor off. It wasn't her apartment. Uh, she had shot an innocent man. And so she was on trial for his, for his homicide. And she was found guilty. And then the younger brother of this man who was killed, uh, and I show the video of this to my seventh graders, he gets up and he says, I forgive you. He goes, I didn't know what I was going to say here. I didn't want to forgive you, but I want to forgive you. And then he asks the judge, if he can go down and give her a hug. And the judge, who's a black woman, says no. And then he goes, he turns to her and says, please, with quavering voice, and she said yes. And so with a bailiff standing nearby, he goes and he hugs this white female police officer, uh, and they're both crying. And then uh, he forgives her, 
later on, that judge gives her personal Bible to that police officer. And then in the, uh, in the report, with the reporters and so forth, the parents and the other siblings, they're upset at their son, their brother, for forgiving the police officer. But I hold that, I show that video to the seventh graders. This is what we're all about. You know, the brother said, I don't even want you to go to jail. That's how much he's willing to forgive this young lady for taking, even though she took his older brother away. Now, she has to be held accountable legally, but what he was doing was loosing her from the guilt of her sins of what she had done in killing an innocent man. And that really ties into the next set of, of readings. Yes, you, for, yes, yes, I was trying to do yeah, that. You know, it's a good for, segue. For this week, which um, the, the gospel reading is the next section of Matthew, which is the, the unmerciful servant. And then the Old Testament reading is Joseph forgiving his brothers. Um, do you want me to read the, the unmerciful servant? Yeah, your eyesight's better okay. than mine. Uh, then Peter came up and asked Jesus, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you as many as seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle them, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Because the man was not able to pay the debt, his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, children, and all that he owned to repay the debt. Then the servant fell down on his knees in front of him, saying, Master, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. The master of the servant had pity on him, released him, and forgave him the debt. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him one hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began choking him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and begged him, saying, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and threw the man into prison until he could pay back what he owed. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were very distressed. They went and reported to their master everything that had taken place. Then his master called him in and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt when you begged me to. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? His master was angry and handed him over to the jailers until he could pay back everything he owed. This is what my heavenly Father will also do to you unless each of you, one of you forgives his brother from the heart. So, again, what we were talking about with these earlier verses is it's not about conflict resolution unless the conflict is sin. And Peter picks up on it that it's about sin when he asks, well, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? You know, you know how many times must I forgive uh, that lousy younger brother Andrew? It's really what he's saying here, right? Uh, how many times do I have to forgive him? Okay, I'm willing to give him, like, forgive him like seven times. So I was reading something interesting today that apparently the rabbis had said, if a man sins against you once, forgive him. If he sins against you twice, forgive him. If he sins against you three times, forgive him. But after that, you are not required to forgive him. And so it almost seems, I, we don't know if Peter had this in mind, but it, it, you could take this as Peter going, all right, I'm going to double it and add one, and Jesus will be like, yeah, Peter, way to go. Yep. That's what you should do. Yeah, well well done, my good and merciful servant. Or, uh, hey, yeah, you did this double plus one. I'm going to build my church on, on this rock of you, Peter. And instead, Jesus comes back with, no, 77 times, or I've seen 70 times seven. There's different ways. But the idea is, no, you. it's not, there isn't, there isn't an amount that after which you stop forgiving. And then he goes into the parable that illustrates this. Yeah. So when I'm, I'm teaching this again to maybe husbands and wives, people are a little older and uh, can understand the humor. Say, you know, like if your husband leaves the toilet seat up, you know, now all right, she's patient and at 491, you know, 70 times 7, now she's mad. And now she's... I, I don't have to forgive you anymore. Keep that seat, put that seat down. That's not what it's talking about here. No, but it, it is unfortunate. There are those people that, that keep those, every single slight that someone does again, they keep a record of that and just live their lives, you know, keeping track of that sort of thing. Yeah. In thinking of this parable, I'm reminded of one of the older ladies in our congregation that was a, was homebound many years ago. And, 
she had a tad bit of dementia because uh, she would tell me the same thing every time. And what she told me was, you know, Pastor, it says in the Lord's Prayer, we have to forgive others as we have been forgiven. And then she'd add, so if we don't forgive other people, we're not going to be forgiven. I said, yes. And sadly, one night, uh, someone came in and tried to, well, broke into her house, tried to steal things, and then because she was there sleeping, tried to kill her. He took a pillow and held it over this 80-plus-year-old lady's face. Uh, he didn't kill her. She survived. But when I saw her in the hospital, uh, sh- her face was black and blue and purple. Uh, she, Like I said, she survived, but she never really recovered. And when I would see her in her house, for some strange reason, she didn't say to me anymore, you know, Pastor, we should forgive others as they've forgiven us. It was hard for her to forgive. And then uh, her niece was a member of our church. And anytime she would bring up her aunt, she would cry. And still to this day, I'm sure it's very difficult to forgive that guy that basically ended up taking, shortening the life of her aunt. And it's hard to forgive other people when they have so grievously sinned against us. Well, one of the I'm not preaching on this text this Sunday. I'm preaching on the Old Testament text, which is the account of Joseph forgiving his brothers. But one of the things that I'm going to talk about is just you, we have this innate sinful love of holding on to grudges, that holding on to a grudge, remembering how somebody has wronged us, gives us power over them almost because we can say, ah, they they wronged me. And since they wronged me, then we can justify all sorts of stuff that, well, they wronged me, so I don't have to. I don't have to be nice to them. Or they they wronged me, so, yeah, you know, they could use some help, but I'm not going to help them because they did this. And just this idea, we, we even have terms we use. We talk about getting even with somebody or balancing the scales. That's just how our sinful human nature thinks that when someone sins against us, we're justified in sinning against them. And what God tells us in Scripture is completely opposite to what is natural to our human natures. So last week I had a lady come in, and she lives close by our church, and she needed some help, but she really just wanted some, some counseling. And in, the, in our discussion, she told me that she has been in jail a n- number of times. She's been broke. She's been addicted to drugs. And her life is so messed up. She's divorced also. Well, actually, she said that she's separated and her husband won't give her a divorce. So her life is, is messed up. And her parents don't want anything to do with her anymore. And she said to them, well, you're being unmerciful to me. God wants you to forgive. And I said, I understand that you might want to call them to repentance, but in your position, probably what I said before about husband and wife, you need to come with humility. You need to come begging for forgiveness like this uh, servant who becomes unmerciful later on, but he begs for mercy. Uh, the servant fell down on his knees in front of him saying, Master, be patient with me and I'll pay you everything. Uh, what I told her and I read this parable to her is, uh, you need to come and say, I have, Mom and Dad, I have created a debt and I can't repay it. Please forgive me. And they may not forgive you. And then you come back and you come with humility and over and over again begging for mercy. Even though they may be sinning because they're not forgiving you, I'm not going to put that on them because I don't know the situation, but the key is you have to come asking for mercy. And I think sometimes people have the idea that being given forgiveness means also being forgiven of all consequences for actions. Um, and that's not what what Scripture teaches either. Scripture teaches that part of sanctification is making making restitution. Now, what we can't do as the church is stipulate to people that you must do A, B, C, or D to earn forgiveness. But what we can do is say, well, you know, if you want to make this right with this person, you really need to go do this in your life uh, to to make amends. 
Um, this reminds me. I, I really like the movie "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," mm. and one of I, the, like, I like the song "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," especially. Uh, one of the characters in that at one point gets baptized, and he thinks that now he doesn't have to worry about getting caught because all of his sins have been washed away. <laughs> and uh, George Clooney's character says, "Well, not in the eyes of the state of Alabama." Yeah, and the idea that no, like even though you're forgiven. There are still consequences for actions. Yeah, and and as you were talking there, I was thinking, oh, how you and I plan on using this room, the pit of despair, is you know there may maybe times that we have uh, children here, and we have a window on the door, we have a window uh, on, in the room too, and uh, you know I've counseled enough kids and called them to repentance that kids are pretty smart, you know as we as a church, like you said, are looking for signs of repentance, they can squeeze out the tears and then have a quaver in their voice and say, I'm sorry. And But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for true repentance. And that idea of repentance, that turning away from sin, of turning to go on the new life of sanctification, to live as God wants us to do and to do, to do acts that that make amends for the sins that we have committed. And so what Jesus is saying here, uh, telling this parable, that uh, as the king is looking at these debts, he found a man who had a debt of 10,000 talents. So a talent is is basically uh, a thousand denarii. And a denarii was worth a day's wage. So really this comes down to in today's uh money, maybe like $60 million, okay, that's, uh, or 60 million days wages. So whatever your wages, now multiply that times 60 million, okay? Jesus is picking an exaggerated amount for a reason. Well, in a way, like when the man says, you know, master, be patient with me and I will pay you everything, there is no possible way this man could have repaid the debt. Yeah. So, uh, today, I was asked to come and visit one of our members in the hospital. He's just got a lot of health problems. And as we were talking to uh, talking to each other, and his wife was there, he said, Pastor, I need, to, I need to ask for forgiveness. I need private confession. And so his wife left the room. And uh, after he confessed his sins, I was planning on doing a devotion on Genesis 50. It was funny, Nathan, you and I were just talking about this of, uh, you know, having one devotion prepared and then just winging it. And then that's what happened is I had a devotion, which I shared later on when the wife came back into the room. But uh, I used this portion of the text that here I said, I read up to uh, the the master of the servant had pity on him and released him and forgave him the debt. So after he had confessed his sins, I read this first portion of the text, not getting to the unmerciful servant. That didn't apply to him. I wanted him to know that he is the servant who has created this huge debt of his sins, but he has just confessed them, and God is the merciful king who said, I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to release you from it. But here's where you have to bring in the other part that I said, the king doesn't just forgive it, doesn't release it. He he has his son pay for it, not with $60 million of day's wages. Uh, what he pays for it is with his holy, precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death, with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Now you are freed of your debt. And it's just such a striking contrast in this parable between the generosity and mercy of the king and the utter disregard that the servant has for his fellow servant. Um, it says he owed him about 100 denarii, which is about 100 days wages. So think, I mean, roughly estimating, you know, what someone would earn in three months. This is not a debt that is unpayable, and it certainly, it would not have even made a splash in what the man owed to the king to repay. And not to mention, he didn't owe that money anymore because the king had completely forgiven the debt. And so for this man 
to go and to viciously assault this other servant just shows his utter lack of appreciation for the amazing gratitude that the king had showed to him. And then you can see how the king reacts when the other servants who are very disturbed by the unmerciful servant's actions toward their fellow servant, they go and tattle. They go and tell the king. The king has this unmerciful servant dragged before him, and now he's angry, and he hands him over to the jailers until he pays back everything he owes, which he can't. So he and his family are remaining in debtor's prison. And then we apply that is when we are unwilling to forgive others, even though we have had this huge debt of our sin paid for by Jesus Christ and we have been released, and then we hold these minor sins, these grievances, these conflicts. Now, they can be even huge sins. Uh, again, I've, I remember counseling one of, our, one of the ladies that had taken my adult confirmation class. And in the course of her class, she said that when she was a teenager, her older teenage sister was murdered. And now this is three decades later, and that, uh, that pain is just as raw 30 years later. And just trying to work through that forgiveness. Uh, because people will say, forgive and forget. Well, you, we can't. Uh, we can't forget, but we, we have to do is just keep on forgiving. And if we don't think we can, then we go to Jesus and realize, oh, he forgave us a much greater debt. Even, even the debt of a murder of our, ch- of our child or our sister or whatever, as great as that debt is and that someone owes us, it's not as great as what we have created to our Heavenly Father, our King. And I think there is something to be said that since we still have that sinful nature that clings to us until we die, that even our forgiveness is going to be imperfect. It's going to be marred by sin. But it's that attitude of, you know, yeah, sometimes stuff is going to pop back up and we're going to we're going to remember what somebody did to us and we're going to be upset about it. But to go to God and say, God, help me forgive this person. It's that attitude of, I don't want to hold this in my heart. Where it gets dangerous for a Christian is when we cling to that grudge, when we hold on to it, when we, um, we haven't read the Genesis account, but um, the Hebrew word there that talks about what the brothers were scared is that Joseph was going to cherish his animosity towards them. This idea of holding this grudge as something precious that we can hold over the other my, person. My precious. Yes. That's... That's where we're not being forgiving. That's where we're we're more we're more obsessed with our sin than we are with forgiving the person. You know, it's a good podcast if we can bring in the pit of despair from the Princess Bride, the Sarlacc pit from Star Wars, and my precious from the Lord of the Rings. That's that's good. And a reference to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, yeah. Okay, that is quite. That is really not in the pantheon of great classic movies. But anyhow, uh, this Sunday, we are going to our new fall schedule. So we had a summer schedule, and now we're going back to the regular schedule. And the reason I bring that up is this will be the first time that Nathan this week, me next week, uh, races. So the way we're going to be doing the services at Water of Life with our two campuses is I'll be doing the liturgy and the Bible study, so the the worship service and the Bible study in between at the Racine campus at 8 and 10.30. Nathan is going to be preaching at the Racine campus. And as soon as you're done preaching... I'm going to scamper out of the pulpit out to my car. Yeah, and go up, run as fast as he can into the car, go up to Caledonia for the ninth. Uh, yeah, 9.30 service. Change, change out of my one alb into my other alb. Yes, and then do the service there. That you should have plenty of time for. The next yeah, one... It's the getting back getting to back, preach. Getting back in time to preach, uh, to preach the sermon, and even before that, the children's devotion. So other churches have done this successfully, so we're going to try it. But the reason I bring it up is because I'll be reading the gospel lesson on Sunday, and... This just strikes me that the last verse is, this is what my, fa- my heavenly Father will also do to you 
unless each of you forgives his brother from his heart. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Yeah, I was going to say this is, I, I really, you can't always draw in all of this, the readings in a sermon because then it, it just gets too unwieldy. But this worked really well as part of my specific law um, for this is to go is to go to this and say, this is what God says. We don't do this. Anything else you want to bring up with this text? No, I don't think so. All right, so let's get into the the Old Testament lesson. And since you're going to be preaching on it, I'll read this from Genesis 50. Uh, I won't recount the entire story, but the idea is that Joseph, after being sold into slavery uh, by his brothers because they hate him because of his Technicolor dream coat, now he is much later. Uh, he's got his brothers, his family in Egypt, but now dad has died, and the brothers are afraid. Uh, Moses writes for us, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back in full for all of the evil that we did to him. They sent the following message to Joseph. Before he died, your father commanded us, You are to tell Joseph, Please forgive the offense of your brothers and their sins, because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down in front of him, and they said, See now, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring this to pass and to keep many people alive, as it is to this day. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will nourish you and your little ones. He comforted them and spoke to them in a kind way. You know, if there was ever an example of someone who would be completely justified in not forgiving, it would be the story of Joseph, how his brothers hated him, how they, they first, they plotted, they were going to murder him. And then they decided, no, well, we're just going to throw him in a cistern. Oh, you know what would be a better idea is if we sell him into slavery in Egypt. And make some money on the side. And make some money on the side. And then we're going to lie to our father about what happened. And, you know, and then Joseph's life in Egypt is one setback after another to begin, well, to begin with, where he he's serving in Potiphar's house, and then he's falsely accused of, uh, trying to seduce Potiphar's wife, and he's thrown into prison. He does something really nice for someone there and gets forgotten about and sits in prison and then, well, finally becomes second in command of all of Egypt. But, I mean, he he had the power, the opportunity, and the motive to do all sorts of evil to his brothers, and yet he forgives them. Uh, that line, I really like what Joseph says, am I in the place of God? What's interesting is in Egypt, Pharaoh would have been considered a living God, and Joseph was his number two. So he had basically unlimited power. And I don't think in this instance Pharaoh would have said, yeah, after what your brothers did to you, you can do whatever you want to them. I'm not going to stop you. And yet Joseph says, no, it's not, it's not for me to take vengeance against you. It's for God if he wants to do that. I'm going to forgive you. And just the generosity of Joseph that he had showed to his brothers. And at this point, too, he had brought his family down to Egypt. The brothers had been living under Joseph's rule for 17 years at this point. And how that guilt of what they had done must have just been hanging over their heads every day. And Joseph had forgiven them previously, but the brothers very much seemed to be convinced that he was only doing that to keep Jacob happy. And now that Jacob was dead, well, now Joseph was going to get his revenge on them, and they were terrified. So I use this text today uh, in two different visits. One was in the hospital with the gentleman I previously mentioned, and then one was uh, a prospect, uh, the husband of one of our members, you know, who had just who's recovering from MCL surgery in his knee. And it's interesting how God's word can be used in so many different instances. So I, I used it this way, am I in the place of God? And I recounted the story of Joseph, like you did, Nathan. 
And then I recounted a story of one of my former members where uh, a lot of things, really bad things happened. She had been in a car accident, lost her husband. Uh, she was in a coma for several years, but because of that, uh, being a, becoming a member down by us, she had been in Michigan. And now she was living in Kentucky. But through her, I ended up having uh, her son and daughter-in-law become members of the church. She became the treasurer of the church. Uh, I ended up baptizing their three children, baptizing their uh, well, this lady's great grandson, and so forth. But none of that happens, humanly speaking, unless that lady has that horrific car accident. Am I in the place of God? Obviously, we wouldn't want that to happen. And then I applied it to these two gentlemen, one in his home, one in the hospital. Obviously, they would not have to go through their surgery or their extreme pain. And yet, am I in the place of God? No. God, I said, looking at Joseph and this lady's life and their lives, God uses these difficult things because he's got a plan. And I told them about one of our members, Armin, who was called home to heaven on Sunday uh, or Monday, that two weeks ago, no one knew he had cancer. They took His daughters took him to the hospital. Two weeks later, God has called him home to heaven. It seems very quick. And yet, it wasn't quick. In God's timing, it was exactly the right time. Am I in the place of God? No. Uh, and then we talked about how... Uh, all the bad things that happened to Jesus. You know, not so bad of Jesus uh, humbling himself, taking the very nature of a servant in the womb of his mother, then being laid in a feeding trough as an infant, crawling around on the floor in Bethlehem, and then walking as a toddler on the floor in Nazareth, later on being hungry for 40 days in the desert and tempted, and then being betrayed by one of his best friends, denied by another best friend, deserted by the rest of his best friends, and then uh, spat on and mocked and slapped by his religious leaders. And then by his governor, he's scourged, his back is torn up, a crown of thorns put on his head, nailed to a cross. But all of that for our salvation. I tied it in with Joseph. For the saving of many lives. Am I in the place of God? No, but Jesus is, and he put himself in place between God, who is holy and righteous and just, and us who are sinners, so that we could be forgiven, so that our great debt tying into the gospel lesson could be forgiven. And I just bring that all up because it's interesting how we can use that same text in a different way, whereas you're going to be using it, you know, how are you going to be using this text with your sermon then? Uh, this I'm my theme is talking about how forgiveness is not fair and uh, it's kind of toying with that idea of getting even and how as Christians we are we are told not to get even we are told to forgive and how that doesn't to the world well that's not that's not fair and then dealing with sin that idea of holding grudges and how much pleasure that can give and then but God didn't hold a grudge, and if anyone should be able to hold a grudge, it's God, because you think of the the, the insurmountable debt that we owe because of our sins. Um, one of the other things I'm going to bring in, I really like when you can bring in examples of Jesus' active obedience, how he did perfectly what we could not, and it's just such a powerful image of him hanging on the cross and looking at those who are crucifying and saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. And you think, could I in that moment, hanging on the cross, look at those crucifying and say, forgive them? I, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. And yet Christ did it perfectly. Even in that moment of his ultimate suffering, he showed perfect love and forgiveness. And it's good you, you talk about the act of obedience. Uh, again, teaching catechism class, or even you know, when we do children's devotions, you ask the kids, you know, what did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross. Yeah. And I say, yes, he did. But he also lived perfectly in my place. Uh, I, and I, you know, I'll chastise them and gently say, oh, you guys, you're so good with a past obedience. You're forgetting about Jesus' act of obedience. No, I don't tell that to the five, four and five-year-olds. But trying to drive it home because I understand when I'm doing a children's devotion, uh, 
and I think my people have picked up on it, I'm really talking to the adults. But it's through the kids because the kids are no different than the adults. The adults, too, focus on Jesus' past obedience. But it's like you said, driving home into their hearts, sometimes through the kids, about Jesus' act of obedience. They have to go together. And another part is Jesus died on the cross and then... Well, don't forget about the resurrection. He didn't remain dead. <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, anything else you want to bring up on this text? Um, I I just think this is this is a great opportunity just to kind of review the Joseph story. Um, I have to work it into my sermon. I'm going to give an encouragement for people to to go home, read the entire account. I did that yesterday just to get it back into my head to refresh it, but just to see everything that happened in Joseph's life and how his faith didn't waver. He remained faithful and how he's such, he's such a powerful example of what the life of a believer look, should look like. Yeah. So, Nathan, how many sermons have you written in your life? I believe this is number 28 or 29. 28 or 29. Okay. I'm just curious because... Uh, you know, I've written sermons almost every Sunday for not 28 or 29, but 27 years. So I have a few more under my belt. Uh, not that I'm a great preacher or anything, but I know the way I write my sermons, and it's always adapting. And something you said uh, just reminded me of this is, I know a lot of people, a lot of preachers, and I've probably done this a lot too, just using examples. And what I'm trying to do in my preaching now is not to use examples of this thing or that thing because people like stories and I like telling stories. And so I'll tell a story like I did with that, that lady uh, who was a former member uh, and so forth. But here, what you said struck me is you don't have to make up a story or find a real story because you, you have, have a, a story. You have a yep. real scriptural story and people are uh, biblically illiterate. And even if they know the story, they don't really know it that well. And so, yeah, to be able to retell the story, it makes the sermon a whole lot. Writing, you still write the same amount of words, but you don't have to... Yeah, you don't with, have to come up with as much. You don't have to come up with as much because you get to tell this great story. It might take half half the, the sermon, and that's okay, uh, to get them into God's Word, a real-life example uh, of someone who was merciful. And this is something we talked about at the seminary when we were talking about preaching techniques. And something that was mentioned is, yeah, with our society, those basic understanding, knowing the biblical stories isn't there anymore. Um, you can't just reference Naaman and expect people to make those connections. You you, you have to spell those out. And yeah, sometimes it means maybe not saying all the things you want to say, but reminding people of those biblical stories, or unfortunately, probably some of your members, having them hear them for the first time, or at least the first time in a very long time. And then one of the things, too, you know, my people have been hearing me here preach for 19 years, so they understand that I'll throw in little bits of humor. They have to some, sometimes they have to work for him. Like I said before, the Technicolor dream coat, I said that in a devotion, and the wife smiled, you know, because it wasn't really technical, Technicolor, but people remember, you know, like Donny Osmond in that. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was, I, my parents, I feel like, only owned four cassette tapes when we were growing up, and one of them was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor dream coat. Yeah. So still to this day, I, uh, I cannot listen to that musical. Yeah. But it, but it's just those little tidbits. And then our people, there's at least a few of them, you know, most most of them are like most other Lutherans, they'll smile loudly. But there'll be a couple that will chuckle out loud. And I had one of my ladies said, when we first merged the church and she was here from Epiphany, now a Racine campus, and she had gone up to the Caledonia campus. And, and I said something and she thought it was hilarious. And she she laughed out loud, and then afterwards she said, do the people at New Hope not have a have a sense of humor? I said, no, they're just not used to my style of preaching yet. It does feel really awkward when you, you make a joke in a sermon and you don't get the laugh, and you're like, 
all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I'll I'll tell my people, come on, that was really funny. Yeah, I don't have that confidence. No, yet. I don't say that. I say that to my girls, but they just roll their eyes louder. Then. <laughs> all right, we'll wrap it up here. This is Pastor Michael Zarling and Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from the Pit of Despair at Water of Life. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.